0: This week on the Tech On Tap podcast, Jeff Steiner joins us to talk about Oracle databases on NetApp Storage, the cloud, and what's new with Oracle on NFS. Well, welcome to the Tech On Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp! I love this company. Zipwalk! Zipwalk! I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> hello and welcome to the tech on tap podcast my name is justin parisi i'm here in the basement of my house and with me today i have jeffrey steiner uh so jeff what do you do at netapp and how do i reach you
1: i am the database guy steiner at netapp.com so i i used to be in the field working for professional services but now i work for engineering i've been in the same role for like eight years now i think And I just get involved in anything in engineering
0: that has anything whatsoever to do with the database. So is this all databases or specific databases?
1: Um, There is a dedicated team that covers SAP HANA, um, because that's got some unusual stuff that we actually do very, very well. But yeah, I cover pretty much any other database. And for the most part, if you're talking about a database other than SAP HANA, you're talking about Oracle.
0: You don't cover SQL? SQL?
1: Uh, to some degree, uh, SQL, MySQL, Postgres, some of the weirder ones where someone will say, hey, can you, do you support this? And we have to say, um, hold on a minute. Let me see what that is.
0: What, what but, about what about Microsoft Access?
1: No, I don't think Microsoft. <laughs> I, you know, I want to say that that actually still got installed the last time I
0: updated Office uh, though. Does, does it that Lotus? even exist? I don't know. Does Lotus still have a database? I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm on a tangent now. So uh, yeah, so, you know, D- Jeff handles a lot of the database stuff here at NetApp. Mostly what I see him chiming in on is, is Oracle-related stuff, and I'm, I'm guessing that was kind of like where you got your start or what your your wheelhouse is. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, I started uh, down that road um, in, oof, like, 95, where we were managing an ever-increasing amount of genomics data, and then I ended up at a different employer that was the OEM for the Oracle retail software. We were eventually acquired by Oracle, And um, we had a little storage from everyone, but just kind of got to like NetApp and um, just gone from there. That's where I got my start. So I I actually have a support case in the NetApp system with three digits,
0: or at least I did before we moved to the new system. Maybe they purged that. Yeah, they might have. You might be in the bird database somewhere there. (laughs) The the old birds. So. You know, you talk about doing Oracle on NetApp and how much you like doing it. So can you tell me a little bit about how customers are using Oracle on NetApp today? Is it mostly file? Is it mostly block? Is there any sort of special consideration? I It's been a while since I've actually looked
1: at the auto support system. It's amazing how much detail we can get on different trends and things. But as a rule... About 50% NFS and 50% SAN. Uh, The SAN has been steadily growing over the years, mostly because we basically own the Oracle on NFS market already. There's nowhere else to grow, Um, but still a lot of growth potential in SAN. So it is about 50-50 if you look at customers. Um, However, if you look at the total volume out there, it's disproportionately NFS because of a few very large service providers that have – like 100 petabyte plus Oracle footprints. But we absolutely do both. It's NFS and it's SAN.
0: I would imagine that the other limiting factor between the two is that file is a little bit less costly to set up than something like an FCP environment.
1: It's, well, you know,
0: I'm not sure how
1: much less costly it is these days, just because if you're looking for a database workload, I think you're going to have to have like an enterprise-grade environment no matter what. I mean, yes, it would be cheaper if you just slapped it on gigabit Ethernet and made an NFS share, but that's not usually what people do. The real benefits to NFS usually come with com- increasing complexity. That's why we have the service providers that gravitate toward it. Like if you have one database, I can't honestly say it's that big of a deal whether you put that on an ASM disk group on fiber channel LUNs or you put it on NFS, but... When you have 100 databases, 1,000 databases, or in the case of these other customers, about 100,000 databases, it just gets kind of unwieldy to manage all of those LUNs and figure out where the free space is and where it isn't, realign storage to make sure that everybody has what they need. It's just simpler with NFS because you can see the files right there on the array. You're not hiding them inside of LUNs.
0: So, how does uh, NetApp solution either on SCP or NFS stack up against something like X XS- or ZFS, right? So, like the the Oracle file system, because you would imagine that Oracle would have a handle on how to hand, you know, do their own stuff. Is it generally about the same as, as ZFS, or are there some b- advantages there? This is one of those cases of
1: <laughs> it's a big. It depends. Um, there really isn't such a thing as the best storage for an Oracle database because it depends on what it is you're trying to do. Like, here's an example that hopefully the marketing people won't yell at me. Sometimes an Oracle Exadata might be even be the right solution. Um, it's a highly integrated setup, it's using Oracle ASM. It's kind of an odd implementation of Oracle ASM, but it's Oracle ASM inside. And if what you have is a mountain of completely unstructured data and you have to be able to parse it with this brute force processing approach, sure, uh, that might be the better solution. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about switching to maybe a a NoSQL database based on NetApp, but if Oracle is what you need, then Exadata might be the right solution. But we're talking about maybe 1% of the workloads. And I'm NetApp would be more than happy to serve as the other ninety nine percent. The Z- Oracle, I can't say ZFS. I'm sorry. I, I have. I was in Europe for a decade. I have to say ZFS now. I can't help myself. Um, we see those show up as sort of big backup dumping grounds for Oracle Exadata's. But other than a brief burst right after Oracle bought Sun, I honestly haven't seen databases on ZFS in ages. I mean, it just doesn't really happen. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the main thing is that it I don't think it was quite mature enough. If you look at it on paper, it is very similar to ONTAP. But when you get down into the nuts and bolts of running the databases, you need things like QoS and you need quota policies. And you there's just a lot of little things
0: that don't exist in the ZFS arrays that do exist in ONTAP. So, I know that when I think about databases, I, I, I kind of have this envision, this vision in my mind of giant files, right? But that's kind of changed over the course of the last few years, I would imagine. Or has it always been this way? Where the databases are now broken up into, into more files so that you don't basically bottleneck on a single file workload it. How is that all architected? and Are there options that you can go one way or the other? Structurally, Oracle is not that different. They're You're normally, um,
1: if you've got a certain query running, it's probably going to be running against just one or two files, but that doesn't really create a performance bottleneck because ultimately what the OS is doing is just IOs. If you need to read 100,000 8K blocks from one file or from 1,000 files, it doesn't make any difference at all if you're dealing with an ONTAP system because the files themselves exist across all of the data drives all the time. You don't have to worry about a hotspot showing up. There are some things where you can uh, um, deliberately architect your database. So data sets are spread across multiple files, and that can be very good for certain high-performance operations. Um, We actually have another interesting use case that just came up with that where Um, It's called partitioning. So let's say that you have sales data, and you've got one database, and you've got five years of sales data. Odds are you don't care about what happened four years ago, but you can't just throw that data away either. So there's some things you can do with Fabric Pool, which I would assume you've talked in other sessions. But in a nutshell, Fabric Pool is a way where you can manage all your data from your storage system. Want your one tap storage system, but the data blocks are actually stored up in the cloud on Object Store. So you can configure a system where all of your data for, say, the past six months is on local disk and quickly scannable, and you, can have, you have fast access to it. But everything older than that, the actual data blocks have now been moved out into the cloud. So that's that when you start dividing up multiple files and partitioning things, it's not just about performance. It is also about efficiency and tiering, things like that.
0: So where do the other uh, newer NAS features fit in, like FlexCache and FlexGroup? I mean, how does Oracle tie into that or just databases in general? I've haven't I can't think of a use case for Flex Cache with databases. There's
1: probably something out there involving a database that also uses a large file repository, but I haven't run across that. Flex Groups, um I can't <laughs> it's funny. We've had this question come up about once a month now for like 3 years. And I can't think of a reason why why not to do that if it makes sense. It would be nice to have some sort of a true best practice. But The only thing that really comes to mind is, let's say that what you have is just a need for a huge Oracle RMAN backup dumping ground. That's a case where flex groups make a lot of sense to me, because you can make one gigantic file share, and you can organize your files as you wish, and then do your backups there. And you'll get nice, even distribution of the data. So that makes sense. I'm sure there's cases where putting an actual Oracle database on a flex group would also make sense, where you get better distribution of the data files as they're being created. Um, I'm not sure it's necessary all that often, but I'll put it this way. Somewhere out there, there are definitely some databases that would do much better on a flex group. I'm just not totally sure how to identify that for sure.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the, the performance benefits of a flex group really come into play when you're creating new files. And I would imagine that Oracle databases aren't creating a lot of new files. Like They, they are occasionally, probably, but I would imagine most of that is adding tables, you know, running queries. Uh, you'd be surprised. We have a lot of customers that really do um, have challenges
1: with creating new data files. It's not just related to storage, either. They'll have various scripts and DR strategies where they have to do some work to
0: accommodate the fact they are creating new new data files from time to time so yeah it actually does happen yeah well that would make sense for for a flux group i would imagine then because now you get that parallel performance when you're creating all these new data files in the in these environments i think
1: another reason why the the benefit is um less for the moment is network speeds are so much faster than they used to be like if you If you were badly limited by either the controller speed or by the network speed, I can see how some cases, sorry, I'm assuming that flex groups speak PNFS now, do they? They do, starting in 9.7. Okay, perfect. So if we were stuck in a world with gigabit ethernet, I can see how, or just spinning disk storage systems, I can see how flex groups would offer a big performance boost by ensuring more even loading of networks and multipathing across different network connections and striping across controllers or whatever. But these days, if you've got even one modest size all-flash array, sorry, all-flash FAS or IFA for that matter, um, controller, and you've got, I mean, typical 10 gigabit, 40 gigabit and beyond ethernet, you've got more bandwidth than you need. You've got more storage performance than you need. It, you just don't really need to break up the files and get more performance. It's probably not a bottleneck. Your bottleneck is probably somewhere
0: else. Okay. As far as FlexCache goes, I mean, I would imagine that if you have remote sites that need to run queries on the data sets, that might make sense for those, right? Now, the, but you you have to have, you don't connect to the files. You connect to the actual,
1: um, the actual database processes. The database processes are the ones that actually talk to the files.
0: Oh, okay. So the files are still... Located where the database processes are. So, really, the, the contention is the WAN with the database processes. Yeah,
1: but that is an interesting idea. I mean, if you have synchronous mirroring in place where, like, any, sorry, synchronous writing, if any write is propagated all across the network before being acknowledged, I could, it would be a bit of a hack. It would certainly scare me to try that. But it's an interesting idea, like, how actually trying to cache. I guess it's no different than what you do in the buffer cache. I mean, if you have a typical file system, you don't when you do a read from the disk, you don't always really read all the way to the storage system. You're reading out of the local cache within the OS. So, I mean, in theory there would be ways to configure a a flex cache like service and accelerate
0: databases, especially in a cluster, but not something I've seen. Okay. So I understand that there's some newer Oracle stuff that's that's come out. Um, what's one of those things that that's brand new with Oracle that's you're seeing more often in the field?
1: Ugh, it's hard to even know where to start with that one. Um, I actually I'd like to start with the the most recent change that Oracle and NetApp have brought out, and that is the Oracle Direct NFS client support that includes nfsv 4 N4.1, and PNFS. And I know that's a whole lot of acronyms and letters and things, so I'll explain what that means. Um, if you go back in the, the very beginning of Oracle databases, obviously they were almost always limited by storage. That's why we always got the blame. If a database was too slow, it's almost guaranteed to be the storage. So Oracle started a number of things. For example, Oracle ASM, what that does is make is a it offers a a single way to access storage devices for an Oracle database. It basically bypasses a lot of the weirdness of the operating system so that Oracle database has the fastest, most reliable, most predictable access to its disks. And the same thing happened with the Oracle direct NFS client. Oracle on Linux or AIX did just fine, but it could be better. And Oracle doesn't want to be dependent on IBM to improve NFS on AIX. So what they did is they wrote their own NFS implementation. So when you start up an Oracle database with DNFS enabled, which is the default with Oracle RAC, and honestly, I can think of no reason anymore at all why you shouldn't turn it on on every database. As you start it up, it will realize its data is on an NFS file system, and it will open its own personal TCP IP connection to the storage system, and then it does direct NFS calls. And that has so many benefits. It's more reliable. You can do things like multipathing, You can get fault tolerance um, in the cloud. It even does some interesting things where if you're using ONTAP in the cloud in the form of um, CVO, Cloud Volumes ONTAP, Cloud Volume Service, or Azure NetApp Files, If you activate DNFS, you get multiple sessions of multiple TCP IP sessions to the disk. The result is that overcomes a lot of the inherent performance limitations in the hyperscaler cloud. In other words, you get way more performance. I forget what the stream limit is, but if there's a limit to how fast any one TCP IP stream can move data in most cloud providers, so DNFS allows you to multiplex all of your I.O. over multiple ones. You can you can do things with DNFS that you otherwise just cannot do within the cloud. So that worked great for years, but an increasing number of customers wanted the better security of NFS v4 and 4.1, and they really wanted parallel NFS. So you could let Oracle sort out the best network path to the storage system. And we've finally got all of the bugs worked out on all sides, um, Oracle and NetApp. And support was formally announced, uh, I think two weeks ago, with the starting with the Oracle 19.3 release. And I'd imagine it would work with older ones and patches as well. So if you need an older version, we could certainly talk, but 19.3 is eh, close to current. Um, There's some versions after that. Of course, those are supported as well. And we're doing well. Um, we're going to start doing some more tests and demonstrating how PNFS will detect the correct the correct path. We've got some guidance that is being updated now on how to configure security. Um, I believe there is somebody named, uh, what was his name, Justin Parisi, that's right. He wrote this um, hey, how that guy? document about NFS and read, if you're going to do NFS v4 or 4.1, read it, then read it again, and then read it again. It's it's a perfectly well-written document. It's just that NFS v4 security is weird, yeah. and it really takes a long time to get your head around what you need to do to make it work properly.
0: There are things to do to simplify it a bit, It, it but it comes at a cost, right? Because you're basically taking some of the complexity out of security by sacrificing security.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it's more like the little things like If the direct NFS client has to mount the file system, but it's mounting it as the Oracle user and that not the root user. And that, that does things a little differently. And if you, once you understand how it works, then it all makes sense. But when you're first trying to read the Oracle DNFS documentation and read the NFS v4 and 4.1 documentation, it's really hard to reconcile what, what it is you're supposed to do. But TR3633, that's my Oracle best practice document, that will have all the details and the gotchas and the frequently overlooked uh, settings on how to make this work. So it's not published yet, but I'm doing the finishing touches. Well,
0: it, the update's not published. Like, update's. It is out there, if you want to look at the older version. Oh, yeah,
1: the TR is is out there.
0: Yeah, it's an old And number. it does
1: actually mention that you can do... Well, the TR mentions that you can do v4... Uh, if someone does go out and read it, um, it does still exclude 4.1, but pretend that doesn't exist. The real truth is in the NetApp uh, compatibility matrix, and that does say 4 and 4.1 are now supported.
0: Yeah, and honestly, if you have to choose between the two, choose 4.1. It's got a lot more benefits than 4.0 does. And four zero I think, is kind of, I wouldn't say it's a dead protocol, but I don't think it's being actively developed as much as 4.1 and 4.2 are. And I had a question I wanted to ask you. What
1: What does 4.2 buy me? I know there's some really cool things that you can do with like file relocation and that I don't think, well, I guess they could be related to a database eventually, but what does Uh, it really, what's the key difference?
0: I mean, with NetApp, there's nothing really because 4.2 support and 9.8 is just basic 4.2 support. So you don't get a whole lot of the feature set. That said, I mean, there are features in 4.2 that people are looking forward to. And I think the biggest one I hear about is labeled NFS. So basically doing security labels to try to make the protocol a bit more useful for for security purposes.
1: Okay. And I was in a conversation with uh, some folks before the standard was ratified. And one of the things that came up was the ability to do sort of in-band signaling. And we're hypothetically saying, well, what if we could have an Oracle database um, ask uh, the storage system to do a snapshot of a certain file system, or restore a certain file with an in-band 4.2 call. There was sort of a hack that you could make it work with 4.1 hmm. as well, but interesting. 4. Point, it sounded like 4.2 would be the better choice. I have no idea if that made that into the into the final spec, but I've always been a fan of NFS. I I just think it's so much simpler than block. I'm not. There's nothing wrong with With block in the right circumstances. It's just uh, like what used to happen when I worked for Oracles, we'd get the new system in, and because it was NFS, I could say, okay, you got 20 terabytes of storage. Where do you want it? And I would just take my guidance from the DBA. So give me a few gigabytes here, a few terabytes there. Oops, nope, I'm wrong. Can you move a terabyte from here to there? And it was just so much easier than with having to create a one. Also more space efficient. Like we found, <laughs> we we ran into a customer who had something like 25% utilization because what would happen is the application owners need, say they need a terabyte, but they'll ask for 1.2 terabytes. So then the DBA say, oh, you want 1.2 terabytes? We'll give you 1.5. And then you go to the Sand guys and they say, okay, 1.5 terabytes. Oh, let's round up to 1.8. And then um, as a kicker, they actually had this provisioning software where when you put the request, the change control request in, it multiplied by like 1.2. And so they just had all of these LUNs that I mean, you can't see inside of them when it's ASM. And they had all these LUNs with huge amounts of empty space in it. And it was a nightmare trying to reclaim that because you can't just shrink a LUN just like that. Um, there was a lot of copying and a lot of reprovisioning, and then who knows what have happened since then, because it's very easy to get back into the same situation because you can't tell where your data is. But if you've got NFS, if you've got a one terabyte data file, that's it. It uses a
0: terabyte on disk. You can see it right there on the storage array. So the, the V4, the V4.2 spec is, uh, RFC 7862. Um, and some of the things i read in here is uh, like looks like some security things like securing an inner server copies. So basically copy offload and having a RPC uh, sec GSS handle around that or a wrapper around that. Oh, copy offload is in that copy offload is is, is it's like a server to server copy. So copy offload, I think, was previous release. Maybe it's in this one, but then it's, it's securing it so you can have GSS over, or a wrapper around oh, okay. that.
1: Oh. I always thought that was a another something that would be a good idea like w- when you have an oracle database typically you have 3 redo logs and every time one fills up you make an archive of it and you that can that can produce a lot of additional IO and that's the sort of thing that copy offload would be really nice to have I don't know if oracle would ever support that but be a good idea because that means the storage array could copy this archive log off rather than reading it down the network to the database server and then writing it back to the new location
0: i know that we have a copy offload for for virtualization with nfs so vaai i would imagine you'd be able to tie into that api somehow as well isn't that that's nfs wasn't i'm sorry was that vmware only or it's like a vmware specific API, okay. but it it call it makes a call to the storage system. So I would imagine you'd be able to leverage that somehow. But yeah, I'm not, and I'm I thought
1: not, there was a Microsoft Windows. There is a there's ODX. Offload. Yes,
0: copy offload is ODX. So it's like SMB ODX in the protocol. So as we've seen with NFS, it kind of converges with SMB and, and vice versa. SMB converges with NFS, and they kind of borrow the same benefits for each protocol, and they they start to use them with their protocol. Okay, makes sense. So, um, you know, you mentioned DNFS and PNFS, and those are very similar acronyms, but with very different use cases. So PNFS is more of your lo- data locality, right? Like redirecting the path for, for I.O. And DNFS is more like multiple network connections. Is that, that? do I have that right? Well, yeah, and they can work together. So let
1: let's take it the simplest. If you have a two-controller system and you enable DNFS, What that means is your database is now doing this super efficient version of NFS. And this, I want to emphasize, this requires no changes at all to the way you manage your databases. If I hacked into somebody's network and just turned on DNFS across the board, no one would notice unless they looked really carefully or they noticed that performance got a lot better. So there's a lot of optional features that you might also want to use, but you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. That's why it's the default. On Oracle Rack, it's so beneficial and so transparent. Why not do it? So, in other words, we've got a lot of DNFS customers that don't even know that they're using DNFS. Now, PNFS is something that we've been um, working toward for quite a while. It's surprisingly well. It's complicated enough in the operating system to do right. So, what Oracle had to re-implement PNFS in their own DNFS client. So, what PNFS does is when you start up your Oracle database, it can essentially get a, a map of which network adapters can serve a particular file, and it will then pick the right one. And the use, the number one use case for this is some, a number of uh, very large customers where they've got like six or eight node clusters. And what they want to do is able to point their Oracle databases at the cluster. And every control on the cluster has some network links. And then um, the Oracle database will pick the appropriate path to the storage. So if you need to rebalance things, if you find out that a database number one is Running really, really hot and it's contending with database number two. You can move one of those databases from one controller to another, and then PNFS will be able to identify the new path to the storage. And I mean, it wasn't bad. And if what you'd have in the old way is you'd have indirect traffic, and I mean, we did our SPC tests with tons of indirect traffic, it wasn't that big of a deal. But databases really are about being as fast as you possibly can so i don't care if indirect traffic only costs me 10 microseconds of latency i want my 10 microseconds latency back and pnfs gives it back
0: so another wrinkle to this is a a new nfs feature that we're supporting in 9.8 there's nconnect so are are you familiar with nconnect
1: yeah i'd say nconnect is um Sounds similar. I'd say it really, to DNFs. is identical to DNFS. Yeah. it's doing the same thing. Where DNFS, I, it's the behaviors changed, but I think what it was, I think if you open up a database, I think you got eight channels per um, per mounted file system. So when you're doing I/O, you're multiplexing the, all of your NFS traffic over eight separate TCP/IP sessions. Um, I might be off on that number, but it was something like between 8 and 16. And my understanding is that NConnect is basically doing the same thing. You're just multiplexing the traffic over multiple sessions.
0: Yeah, and I was just curious, have you done any testing using DNFS with PNFS as well as NConnect? So I'm wondering if that that increases things even more or if it just gets kind of, you know, like overly or- well, complex.
1: If you've activated DNFS, then... Whatever the host is using is irrelevant. You can still see the mount option, the mounted file systems there, but they're not being used. So if DNFS is activated, then using NConnect won't have any effect at all. I mean, you can even have your visible mounted file systems mounted with NFS v3, but DNFS is using NFS v4. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but you could do it. And what so your your host would then see a huge amount of network traffic between the storage system and the database, but it would have no idea what that network traffic is because that's not the OS's NFS client; it's the Oracle's NFS client.
0: Oh, so it's like but an like, NFS client built into the actual application.
1: Oh yeah, it, I mean they read the RFCs and they they've just it's NFS code, just like um, just like the operating system. But the the key things is it's more efficient. For example. If you have, anyone out there who's ever ran a Oracle Rack database in the old days will know exactly what I'm talking about, Um, uh, Access and GetAdder. So if you had an Oracle database on Linux 10 years ago and you looked at your NetApp system, you would see it being absolutely hammered by all of these metadata operations where... Basically, the operating system was constantly saying, have you been updated? Have you been updated? Have you been updated? In order to make sure that you don't accidentally cache data. And we, DNFS doesn't do that. DNFS doesn't care what the user attributes are of the individual files. It just wants to do a read or a write and without having to do these extraneous things. So the day that DNFS came out, we had customers reporting doubling of performance in their databases because all of that extra metadata operations were just erased. They didn't happen anymore. That's also why PNF, the reason PNFS took so long to get working properly in, um, uh, in DNFS is the Oracle engineers basically had to do all that work that the Linux engineers had done to implement it, except they're implementing it in their own code in their own special way and making sure it's as optimized as possible.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, it has its own NFS client. Does that mean you can use it if you had a block storage backing it as well? Or is it just, is that separate?
1: Nope. NFS only. It needs an NFS. It What it does is um, as you start your database, it will identify the files that it needs. And if the files are on NFS, it will then switch over to this direct NFS client. If they're not on NFS, then Oracle starts up as usual.
0: So, would you say that DNFS would give you be, uh, performance benefits even over like a robust Fibre Channel thirty-two gig network?
1: Well, if you're talking Fibre Channel, then you don't have NFS,
0: right? But I'm saying like if, oh, I'm saying oh, versus versus Fibre Channel, like you know, so, so DNFS can do these you know all these operations within the application, and it knows how to optimize it. Does that provide benefits that you couldn't even get with FCP, or is it about the same? It's. It's a really about the same. We run into this question
1: all the time: what is better, uh, NFS or SAN? And there really isn't an answer to that. If you really, I mean, if you're going to run a POC, then what you really want these days is NVMe over Fibre Channel because the NVMe protocol really is the next generation storage protocol, and it blows the doors off of everything that came before. But if you don't need that, why bother? Um, for in the real world. Yeah, the average real-world database, if it is running on halfway decent all-flash storage, honestly, from any vendor, I <laughs> um, hate to say it, but it's true, then odds are storage is not your bottleneck. So you, it doesn't really matter whether SAN or NFS is faster because no one's going to notice. And, and it's really hard to show a picture in a podcast, but I've got these slides that demonstrate this where I will show database after database and you can see that the database is spending 93% of its time doing cpu computational work and 2% of its time on storage operations well do you care if storage got faster or slower no one's going to notice i mean if storage got if your database got 2% faster or 2% slower who cares so the right answer really is, is pick whatever protocol is best for your business. If you are one of those rare customers where yes, you actually do need 1.5 million totally random IOPS at 100 microseconds of latency, we can do that, and you are going to need NVMe over Fibre Channel. But seriously, we've, we've got, we had customers that were doing just fine on spinning disk 15 years ago, and they're doing the same sorts of things. I mean, if it worked 10, 15 years ago on spinning disk with NFS, it's going to work now. The fact that maybe a block protocol is theoretically faster isn't relevant, and you lose all the, the manageability benefits of use of NFS. And, and here's the counter the argument that I always throw out there. If you've invested $10 million on a really complicated, well-managed, well-architected SAN, I mean, I don't know if you're going to get $10 million worth of benefit from a switch to NFS. So like I said, it really just comes down to the unique business requirements. Nothing is better or worse than another.
0: Yeah. And I guess I wasn't talking better or worse. I was just curious if, you know, the benefits of DNFS could, you know, stack up against Fiber chain. It sounds like they can. I mean, it sounds like that, you know, as you said, the contention isn't usually the storage.
1: Well, put it this way. Um, I mean, we can, we've got customers that have one database that is pushing, four 16 gigabit fiber channel adapters to the limit. And we've got customers that are with NFS that are pushing four 10 gigabit uh, fiber channel, uh, sorry, ethernet adapters to the limit. So, I mean, if you've got 40 gigabits worth of bandwidth flowing, then 40 gigabits is 40 gigabits. It's It, it does, I mean, it, it is performing about the same. If you really want to drill down into it, if what you've got is like a single full table scan where you're just reading one file start to finish, that sort of IO tends to do better on block storage. And if you're just doing a ton of purely random IOs, that tends to do better with NFS, but that's just very loose rule of thumb. Bottom line is it doesn't really matter. You can get what you need from any protocol you want in almost every case.
0: So this kind of brings me to my next uh, question here. You recently did a, a tech field day where you talked about Oracle database performance, and, and you will, we'll will link that in the uh, in the show notes here. But in that presentation, you you kind of made a controversial statement where it was basically Uh-oh. the issue of of Oracle performance is usually write better database queries. Now I want you to defend that.
1: Okay, so th- I think that was that was a weird presentation for me because. Um, I mean, the storage field days in a way is supposed to be kind of a showcase for your company. And they asked me to do this presentation. I was like, really? Um, It's not really about NetApp. They said, no, that's okay. I'm like, okay. Um, The point of the presentation was about getting the performance that you actually need. And I used an Oracle database as a model, but it applies to a lot of other things. And the point was to explain that it's not just about getting a bucket of IOPS. There's a lot of different complexity to performance of an application. And like I said just a few minutes ago, if you have an all-flash storage array, what you've got from a database point of view is an easy single block read latency that should be 500 microseconds or better. That is an easy target to make with any all-flash array from any vendor unless it's absolute garbage. <laughs> so the moment you have that, the odds are storage is not your bottleneck. And we see customer after customer where they say, my database is too slow. And we say, okay, show me an Oracle AWR report. That's a detailed performance report from the database. And then I will walk them through the numbers and I'll say, okay, you can see 87% of your time, you are limited on CPU work. That's not storage. And X percent of the time, you're limited on global cache contention. That's rack nodes fighting over the same data. That's not storage. And I've said to customers at least 100 times, look, um, you could upgrade storage, you could downgrade storage, and you're really not going to notice much of a difference. You can't spend your way out of this problem. Um, And I've even told partners that if you really want to offer value to your customers that use databases... Take a couple of your best guys and send them to SQL school because it's, I mean, if your customer wants to spend a million dollars, it won't make any difference on storage. But $50,000 worth of professional services to rewrite some of the SQL queries to run more efficiently, that will do it. And more importantly, that's your only option a lot of the time. I and mean, once, what are you going to do? You can't, nobody's going to sell you storage that is one microsecond latency, it doesn't exist yet.
0: Yeah, I think I would imagine that that comes across really well with the customers because you're not going in there trying to sell them more storage and and that's what they expect you to do. But when you go in there and you're like, look, you can fix this problem like this, much cheaper, much easier and much more efficient. I would imagine that they're very happy about that usually. You know, you'd you'd think so. But honestly, an awful lot of the time, it seems like
1: I don't know, like, that's not what they wanted to hear in a way that it would be easier if they could just give you a million dollars and make their problems go away. But now they're going to have to call Oracle and call, do a professional services contract, and they're going to have to schedule some testing. Um, but, I mean, it, it is what it is. Um, I, there's no other way around it. It'll be interesting to see what happens over time. Like, I guess this is one of those things that's giving rise to the NoSQL era, where, you um, the storage is just so ridiculously fast now that all of these things that oracle has done in the databases to make them work and work smarter just aren't that important anymore where since the storage is so fast you can do things honestly simpler but stupider and actually work faster i mean look at the rise of sap hana that that's sort of an example where they were, yes, there's a lot of sophistication in there, but an awful lot of SAP HANA is just about the objective reality that you can get a mountain of RAM for a lot less money than you used to be able to. And we can just skip going to storage. Why optimize? Let's just do everything in RAM.
0: So uh, our, uh, my, my understanding is that there's another new aspect of Oracle. It's, it's involving multi-tenancy. And if, let's just start with you know talking about what multi-tenancy is and then how it fits into what Oracle does. So the multi-tenancy feature has been
1: around for a while in Oracle. I think it showed up in 12CR1. Basically, it's closer, I'm gonna murder some terminology here, but uh, instance and database are used differently with different vendors. If I remember right, with SQL, what you have is one instance, like one SQL that's running, but you might have 10 different databases in it. With Oracle, it's the reverse. You have one database, but you might have multiple instances. So, what Oracle is sort of doing is moving toward the SQL model where you have one installation and you've got one program. I mean, yes, it's multiple processes, but one program running. But now you've got multiple databases and they're calling it multi-tenant. It's not necessarily like cloud public tenant. could be, but not necessarily. So. The idea is, let's say you have a big ERP environment with eight different applications and eight different databases. With Oracle Multi-Tenant, you can run all eight of your databases on the same, say, Oracle RAC server, on the same hardware, with the same processes. You'll require fewer headcount to manage it. If you do a backup, you can just backup everything as a single unit, but you can still have a certain measure of security where... One set of administrators can access this database. Another set of administrators can access that database. So it's, from that point of view, it's pretty classic, what you'd assume is multi-tenancy. And we just released a TR. I'm blanking on the number. It's Oracle multi-tenancy. And it's, um, there's not that much to it, but it goes over the best practices that you should be considering to make sure that you get the best out of NetApp with a multi-tenancy environment. Um, Oracle is also getting more aggressive with multi-tenancy. They really want you to start using it. It's essentially mandatory in, as of Oracle 21, I think. Um, The license requirements seem to be a little bit in flux. At one point you could do just one um, database, well, one database tenant per system. they call called a pluggable database. I think it might be up to three now, but as always be very careful with Oracle licensing.
0: I was about to say, like I was. It sounds like this is a way to kind of redo their licensing to kind of get or get around some some hacks that people have been using over the last few years with virtualization and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a, certainly part of it because yeah, that getting around as an answer to virtualization. Yes, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But I, I'm not totally sure what their end goal is. I mean, there are some benefits, like to directly to Oracle, like for an upgrade. With what they've done, it's easier to sort of unplug a database from one version of Oracle and then plug it into another version of Oracle. So the backup process is easier, the migration process is easier, which benefits Oracle because that means that they have happier customers with fewer support calls.
0: But- I would also imagine that ties into their push for Oracle Cloud. Yeah, it would
1: certainly would make it easier to plug and unplug in between the cloud. But here's the catch with the pluggable databases: um, they they aren't fully independent. There's still one set of control files, one set of logs that give that serve all of the databases running under a multi-tenant environment. And what that means is you can't totally give people independent access. Like let's say that. You had eight different tenants, uh, each with their own pluggable database. You could give them access to the data, and they could have different applications reading and writing data. But what about backup and recovery? That, if you can backup and recover one of them, you can basically backup and recover all of them. So it's not completely secure multi-tenancy, not in not in an administrative point of view. And I'm hoping they get there. Um, I think that would. That would be very nice if they could. It'll, compl- it'll complicate our lives a lot, but I think it would help customers. Uh, the implication of that is if they do that, you're going to have multiple sets of logs. Um, each pluggable database would have its own set of redo logs and its own set of archive logs, and that could get awkward from a storage point of view. But it, I can see a lot of benefits for the DBA if they did that. The thing that's cited the most by customers that went to multi-tenant really is just the reduction in headcount and management overhead, because there's fewer things to manage if you wrap everything up under multi-tenancy. So we don't see it much, but where we do, the customers do seem very happy with it.
0: Yeah. And that Oracle uh, TR for multi-tenancy is TR4876. Okay. And if anyone can... has any feedback on that or any missing parts, it's a new one. So I'm sure we've
1: we've overlooked something that you want to hear about. So Steiner at netapp.com. I'll talk to Eben and
0: we'll get it updated if you have any comments. So, we we touched on the Oracle Cloud piece, and that kind of leads us to the next idea of Oracle running a database in the Cloud. What are some of the considerations with doing that? Oh,
1: I've got a lot of presentation material on this one, too. Um, I guess the main thing about Oracle Cloud, I'm sorry, the main thing about running a database in the Cloud is you've really got to understand latency. The hyperscaler cloud providers are trying to design an all-purpose compute and storage system, and while you can run databases on them, they're not designed for it. And if you are an enterprise of any scale at all, you'll rapidly run into uh, latency limits where native resources just don't have the latency to run a database, or it will be extraordinarily expensive because it's not designed for the level of IOPS that you're going to need. And we've got two answers in that. We've got uh, in cloud volume service over on Google and AWS, and we've got um, ANF, Azure NetApp Files over on Azure. So what they've, I mean, not much to it. What they've done is they've taken actual physical NetApp AFF hardware and wrapped it into their service. So it's a native part of the cloud service where you can just whip up a volume of whatever size you want. The latency is much, much better. It is designed for IOPS dense workloads and it's a lot more tunable. And it's got the usual goodies like snapshots and clones. So that's one of our answers to databases in the cloud. And it really just comes down to it's IOPS dense, low latency storage. That's It's not magic, it, it's just, you can't get that elsewhere in the cloud. Um, the, uh, the other option is cloud volumes on tap where it's the same x86 code that we run on the physical hardware systems, but it's running in a VM. And that does use the native storage resources. So the latency can sometimes be a challenge. It might be higher than what you're expecting, but so I'm told over half of all of the um, CVO cloud volumes on tap instances are actually supporting databases, and I talk to Oracle customers about it at least once or twice a week about moving their Oracle to CVO. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean that that's what it's for: databases in the cloud. Um, and also one other thing, it's got um, a neat new feature that I'm trying to get benchmarked. Um, you can get a VM in the cloud with a little chunk of NVMe SSD. I guess normally you'd use that as scratch space or something, but we can use it for flash cache. It's the same logic that behind our original flash cache where we had spinning disk systems, and then we accelerated them with a mountain of flash-based cache. Same thing now. We've got um, Now we've got all of these hyperscaler, all-flash devices that aren't quite as fast as we'd like them to be. So we have a VM with a chunk of NVMe storage in it that can accelerate it. And I've seen some of the performance uh, benchmarks with VDBench, and it's amazing how screaming fast it can go. Um, Still need to learn a bit more about the ins and outs of running an Oracle database on that, but it really can... You can legitimately run like an enterprise class, super high I.O. mission-critical database and get all your... Synchronous mirroring RPO needs met in the cloud with simple CVO, like a, a totally virtualized cloud storage resource. So it's kind of a tie. I mean, at CVS ANF approach versus CVO. I don't think one is either better or worse than another. It really depends on what you're trying to do and what meets your business needs.
0: Well, one advantage of doing something like CVS or ANF is it's kind of you know as a service, right, as opposed to cloud volumes on tap where you're you're managing that yourself.
1: Yeah, there's a. It, you're not managing much. Uh, the, you provision it with, uh, it was called Cloud Manager. I'm hoping they didn't change the name. The provisioning process to whip up a CVO instance and then start serving data with it is really nice. It's just a little point and click uh, GUI. I mean, I I still haven't read the documentation for any of this. I just thought the GUI was intuitively obvious and I set everything up, did my tests. Um, but yes, you do have to pay a little bit of attention to what sort of VM are you using and what are the capabilities of the backend disks that you're about to use. And I've got a TR, um, Oracle on Cloud Volumes on tap. Uh, there's Azure and AWS versions of those that tells you a lot of the basic details. But you do have to pay attention to it, unlike CVS, f where that's our problem. What you've bought is a bunch of bytes and IOPS, and it's our responsibility to make sure that you've got what you need.
0: I also found when I was using cloud volumes on tap that you also have to pay a little more attention to networking and you have to have at least some depth of knowledge when you're dealing with setting up different networks and like the data lift piece and on tap's easy. It's just the, the external stuff that was a little harder. I felt, I felt. Well, that, that is one example
1: where you really want to be using direct NFS. So you do get multiple sessions. So you get the fastest connection to your CVO instance. Um, but uh it's not usually a problem with databases. Um, as you get to a smaller and smaller VM, you start running into various network bandwidth limits that sometimes can unexpectedly bite you, where if you're trying to run an Oracle database on the tiniest available VM, you might have some network bandwidth limits. But most customers are using a large enough system that it's essentially unlimited. The, the limiting factor is going to be CVO itself, not the network, most of the time. Oh, one other thing about CVO. Um, it is ONTAP, which means snap mirror. And that's um, one of those truly differentiating things where you can have a database on premises and you can have it on NFS or you could have it on Fiber Channel or iSCSI, whatever you like. And you can replicate that to the cloud, to cloud volumes on tap. I mean, it's just ONTAP like any other ONTAP. And you could do that for cloud based backups. You could use the cloud for DR. You could use that as a temporary measure to create a bunch of cloud-based clones for a database while you're developing a new project. So that that also is truly different. And that's not something you can do in ANF or CVS because those are services. That's that's a storage service. They've got a lot of features, but you're not going to be able to connect that back to your own on-premises environment.
0: No, oh, okay. That's interesting. You can't really do the, the snap mirroring to and from your on-prem.
1: Yep. I would. I mean, I. I have no. Not. I don't know what the roadmap is. I'm sure somebody has. Um, has certainly looked into this, and I'm. I would love to see it. It's an obvious use case,
0: but that's not a feature that's there now. So, how are companies handling security when they're dealing with the cloud and databases? Like, what are they doing, and what sort of things should they not do? So, I'm. I am not a security
1: expert. Although, what I did do was uh, at Insight last year is a session on securing applications environments. And like a real hardcore security guy would probably be horrified at the things that I did or did not cover. Um, But I was basing that on my own experience, which is mostly about what really tends to go wrong. The number one thing that tends to go wrong is um, honestly uh, the backups, where if you are working in the cloud or any kind of uh, potentially insecure environment, you've got to keep in mind that you're however you protect your database, you are going to have backups. You're going to have a lot of them and they can very easily get lost. That's why we've seen a lot of customers going to Oracle TDE, Transparent Data Encryption. Um, As far as I can tell, it has no noticeable performance impact. I mean, I'm sure you you could measure it if you tried, but no one's ever complained about it. And that's nice because it means that like the files on disk are encrypted and the files on whatever those backend devices are encrypted. But more importantly, if you copy one of the data files or if you make a backup of your database, that data is encrypted too. So as long as you don't accidentally store the Oracle wallet, which is where the encryption keys are, with your backups, you don't have to worry. But beyond that, um, honestly, I think it's just it's common sense and it's paying attention. Um, databases by definition, have to be available to people. Otherwise, what's the point of having it? So you've got to keep up with the patches. You've got to keep up with the user access. You've got to start looking at things like, um, uh, well, like multi-factor authentication. All of these things are possible. And I honestly, I don't see them being used nearly as much.
0: What about stuff like ransomware? Like how how is that handled with Oracle? And like, how would you protect a system that might be infected by ransomware that's running an Oracle database?
1: Well, ransomware, for the most part, ransomware shouldn't touch an Oracle database because the... Well, that'd be interesting. I guess you suppose you could actually have ransomware hit a Windows-based database. But because uh, with ransomware, most of the time it's running on a server that actually has access to the files. So if you get a ransomware attack, probably... It's going to be on your PC or maybe a Windows-based server that has actual files. And then the ransomware encrypts it. And if presumably, they're then sending the the decryption key to whoever it is that's going to um, extort you for money. With databases, it's a lot less likely, but it's not unheard of. And that's actually kind of an interesting thought. I never thought about this before. But if somebody actually breached a database, um, they could... Enable encryption from the outside, and if they, and then take the key. So the principle is the same as ransomware that attacks a regular old Windows file share. I haven't heard of that happening yet, but it certainly could be possible. But uh, the more important um, uh, ransomware would just be one of many breaches that could happen to a database where somebody breaks in, probably just just going to delete data. Um, they're probably not going to corrupt it or steal it. Honestly, the answer is snapshots. Um, that's that's how we get out of it. Um, and we a long time ago, we had a, an effort to try to find customers that weren't using enough snapshots and ask them, why why aren't you doing this? Because that's one of the key reasons you bought the ONTAP system in the first place. They're, they're not, there's no downside to it. Run tons of snapshots all the time. And if something goes wrong, if somebody breaches your database and dumps a bunch of critical data, or hey, if you just have a simple user error, if you have snapshots every say 15 minutes, it's so easy to jump back in time 15 minutes and then roll forward to that moment of the breach. And I I guess it's sort of an insurance policy. Nobody really appreciates having an insurance policy unless the insurable event happens not just limited to uh, breaches and such, like our ability to instantly restore a database is best appreciated by the customer that had to restore a database in a hurry and suddenly realized that six-hour RTO to get the mission-critical database system that everyone thought was just fine. It wasn't fine. They weren't happy to be down for six hours during the recovery.
0: Yeah. Another good feature of ONTAP besides the snapshots is the Flex clone, right? So you can pull up a database without any storage cost at all and verify it first before you roll it into production if you're if you're worried about the database having an issue
1: well it's also a recovery path unto itself where i was working on a critical system that was used by a extremely large retailer in the uk where an application glitch corrupted the description field for a bunch of items in this retailer's inventory now, this was used for supply chain management. You can't just restore a supply chain database to its state as of an hour ago, because now your supply chain data is data's wrong. You don't know what's shipped or who has what. So what we had to do is create clones of the snapshots, export the undamaged information, and then figure out what went wrong, and then re-import it into the actual database, so it's it's a way of very rapidly restoring an old version of the data in preparation to
0: fix whatever went wrong with the production data. So as far as other security considerations, I mean, and there was recently a kind of a higher profile database hack, or like a, <laughs> that that was in the news for a little while and it became very controversial and political in some cases.
1: Yeah, don't use a numerical primary key with your database, otherwise, especially, and make sure you use API lim- limit limits, otherwise somebody is going to read every bit of content from your database and post it on the web for everyone to see and for the FBI to review. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, like most database hacks don't steal the information, but this particular one looks like it did. (laughs) Well, there's been some uh,
1: debate. All right. So this is an aside. Um, I had a job where half of it had to be done Um, during the workday and half not in the workday. And they had a very poorly written tuition reimbursement policy. Um, And they ended up having to pay for my law degree. So I've been a a licensed attorney for about 20 years. And we've been talking a lot online with some of these little little checks that I'm in. Ken, is that actually like breaching or stealing data, legally speaking? And the answer is, seems to be no, because if you have an API that serves up, say, a video of you violently storming the Capitol, and that API on that service is just on the internet, freely available, lots of clients can access it, there's no API rate limiting on it, there's no law that seems to say that you're not allowed to scrape the whole thing and download every single object. Now, if you tried to work around some sort of access restriction, that would be unauthorized computer access. But they didn't do any of that. It was just there for the taking. So legally
0: speaking, I think they're fine. Huh, it's interesting because it's kind of like the idea of if I leave my house's door open, it's okay if somebody walks in and takes my, my, you know, safe or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but if you've got an app, though, with an open API and you want people to use the app, I mean, it would be just like if you have, I don't know, people... Amazon has a website where you can check the prices on the products they sell. They Anyone is welcome to go and check the prices on the products they're selling. There's no restrictions to on that. You don't have to have a login. It's not like a secret website. This is kind of the same thing. You, they had There's multiple apps that would just call these APIs to show content. The uh, API was freely there. And more importantly, if they wanted to re- limit the APIs or they wanted to secure it in any way, they absolutely could have done that.
0: So I I guess maybe in this case, it might be more of a liability for the company hosting the database than it is for maybe the people who took it.
1: Yeah. um, There's, I saw one estimate that the AWS egress charges of all of the scraping operations of this, what is it, 60 terabyte data set or something like that, probably were substantial. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So not just the cost of that, but also, you know, if, if you're a service that's, promising privacy and security and you can't deliver that because of a very obvious security hole. I I would imagine you have some liability there legally. Oh, not if the lawyers wrote your terms of service agreement well enough.
1: I bet they have a complete disclaimer of liability in its entirety. You can actually, um, if you want, it's as a different um, approach to this. Like if you go to say Twitter, if you just click on a post for Twitter, the posts all have these randomized letters and numbers and such involving in the post. So you don't you couldn't scrape the entire Twitter website if you tried, because you can't predict it. But if your posts are actually one, two, three, it's like a numerical order of every post every tweet that's ever been written. If you did something like that, then <laughs> you're just begging people to write a a scraping algorithm.
0: Yeah, that does seem kind of a Kubernetes-based scraping algorithm. That too, I thought that was. I got a kick out of that. <laughs> That's pretty good. So, um, as far as that goes, I mean, there was also a, another side thread I saw where this company was showing how much server power it would take to start back up in another data center, and, I, and a lot of people pointed this out. I also did. There, there were you know stating they needed NVMe drives and you know tons of CPU. Which you know, based on the conversation we've had today, leads me to believe that the database queries aren't written very well.
1: <laughs> um, i I saw something where oh, I can't remember how the d de- this gets into more SQL tuning stuff than I'm I'm capable of. But basically, the the approach that they took to just having one giant index of all the queries of all the posts that had ever been made would like if you click on your your feed, so to speak it would have been a very computationally expensive operation and storage expensive to bring together all of that data of who posted what and when and where, and what's relevant and what's been read and what hasn't. And there was a lot of criticism for that. I I actually looked at some of their job postings. I get the idea that this was in a Cassandra database. That was the implication. Yeah. That's what um, it sounded like to me. But they, um, I wanted another, I annoyed some people on Twitter that were screaming monopoly about AWS, and I was arguing pretty vehemently. No, there, no way a monopoly. No, um,
0: plenty of big cloud players out there. Now, yeah. you could argue there's a three way monopoly, but that's that's besides the point. <laughs>
1: well, even something like this. I mean, I mean, we've we've done this stuff. If we really, let's say that you and I wanted to create some sort of a competitor to Twitter, we could certainly find a colo, buy some servers, architect our own environment. I mean, growth would be a little bit painful, but if you're starting slow, the, it's not insurmountable. It's not like I mean, it's not like the big 3 are the only options that they could have used. They could, well, they did finally um, allegedly find a home. I don't know if they're up yet, but they found a home with some other hosting provider that just has bare metal hardware in a cage. Yeah. Kind of proves that they also kind of undermines their uh, their lawsuit against AWS saying that they were unfairly kicked off and have no other option but to – and the courts should please force AWS to rehost them again.
0: Yeah, it's more of a terms of service thing that they were never going to win.
1: Yeah. I can understand the concern about that people might have about potentially being kicked off just because you give somebody a bad reputation. But, I mean, I I would think that AWS would be – also, I mean, they're not going to do anything lightly because they don't want to scare their customers into thinking that AWS is big brother and it's going to kick them off their platform either. So I'd, I would certainly trust
0: AWS to to do the right thing. I wouldn't be afraid of them kicking me off because no, they got I, mad at me. Honestly, it, it, the, <laughs> the gist of it is just, it, it hurt their bottom line. And that's all that really mattered to them is how is it hurting our business? Are we losing business? Are we losing more customers because of this than we would by kicking them off? Probably. Let's go ahead and just get rid of them. I just get sick of performative lawsuits. They they know full well that none of this is
1: going to, none of their their lawsuits will have a, any chance of winning whatsoever. Yep. It's almost like they're just trying to remain relevant until they can get up and running on a different provider. They have no intention of actually prosecuting the lawsuits at all. Yeah. If you actually have a question about Oracle on ONTAP at all, you can always send me an email at steiner at netapp.com. Um, but, um, for the most part, you'll find what you want by going to our webpage, um, www.netapp.com, and just typing in the word Oracle. There's a lot of TRs out there. I've written most of them. 3633 is the really important one. That's best practices, and it's all the little settings and kernel parameters and things that you'd really need to know, um, especially if you were virtualizing. And then TR 4591 is all about data protection. That one's also, I mean, if you shouldn't be using on unless you've at least familiarized yourself with the principles in there. And I know some of them are long, but they're broken down in different sections. You should be able to find which bits are relevant to you and which aren't. Um, but hey, if you want to run something reliable, you you gotta learn the rules.
0: Um so do we still have the insights, the insight presentations? Are they still up? Um, I don't think those are, but some of them have imported over to TV.netup.com. So if you have one that you want to get ported over, you can probably ask them to do that.
1: Okay, I probably
0: should do that. TV.netapp.com, huh? Yeah, I've had a couple put over there, and I've seen other people put it up there. All right, Jeff, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and giving us a lot of detail about Oracle in general and as well as databases. Uh, so, again, if you want to reach Jeffrey, he's, he's giving you his information, and we'll post those TR links in our blog that accompanies this podcast. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or by a TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. Um, On behalf of the entire TechOnTap Podcast team, I'd like to thank Jeff Steiner for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah.